One of my daughters said, oh, you and dad are doing a double act, are you? <laughs> it may feel like that by the end of the morning. We are actually going to share the sermon. I'm going to give a bit of background thoughts, and then G's going to lead us through the story, and then I'm going to return at the end. So that's just the warning, really. <laughs> so we're coming today to the next in the series that we've been following through the summer, looking at some of the miracles of Jesus. So some of what I say you will have heard before, because not surprisingly, some of the same things can be said about this particular miracle, the feeding of the 5,000. Now, I don't know about you, but this is a story that I heard when I was very young, and I think sometime, sometimes familiarity can breed contempt. And so it's such a well-known story. It's something we've just accepted as a story. But what I want to challenge, first of all, this morning is the fact that it's not just a story, it's history. It actually happened, and it was recorded by the gospel writers and many others uh, so that other people could hear and believe. You see, the Bible is a reliable historical evidence. It has all that we need from a... Uh, uh, sorry, it has all that we need from a reliable source. And if you missed Adrian Holloway's talk on June the 26th, it's online, and so you need to feel very free to go and listen to it. You see, the Bible is, can and has got history, history in it. If it was just a story, it would be quite like listening to a historical account of King Alfred the Great. It wouldn't have any impact on our lives. It wouldn't be any meaning. But this isn't a story. This is history. Or as somebody's put it, his story. It's also not a parable. The reason that it happened wasn't so that Jesus could then teach from it, although he did. It happened uh, because there was a need. So the feeding of the 5,000, the other thing to note is it's not an isolated incident. It doesn't seem to have happened just once because more than one gospel referred to another feeding with 4,000. So it not only happened, and we need to grasp that, it happened more than once. This story is mentioned in all four Gospels. And if you remember what Dave said last week, he said that the story he referred to was in three of the four, and so therefore was important. So if this is in all four, then it must be important indeed. And it's the only account that actually features in all four, apart from Jesus' death and resurrection. So we're going to try and think about why this story would be so important that uh, it would be a case of uh, all four uh, Gospels have it. Now, the Gospel writers write it in different ways. There's a change of detail, and there are some differences between them. But that's not surprising, is it? Because if you have the same event, a great event, and you have people who've been to that event, they will report in a different way. Perhaps something has struck them that other things haven't. And then, of course, the gospel writers had a reason for writing. They had a reason for particular reasons. They had people in mind to whom they were writing. And so it's not surprising that we have some differences there. So let's go back to thinking about it actually happening. There are about 250 chairs out, so I'm told, this morning. They're not all full, obviously, but if they were... Can you imagine that what we're talking about here is actually 20 times that number of men? And people have been quite quick to point out that that doesn't count the women and the children. 
So some commentators estimate it could be a total of 15 to 20,000. That's 60 to 80 times what the people are in this room. That's quite a thought, isn't it? So a crowd of people, all were fed until they were satisfied, and there were 12 baskets left over. No wonder it stuck in their memories and in their minds. And it all started with the child's lunchbox, with five loaves and two fish. The extent of this miracle is truly amazing. Now, you'll know from previous sermons just how important the context is. We're going to particularly follow Luke. But in all of the Gospels, this story comes after John the Baptist has been beheaded. Now, we know that uh, Jesus' popularity was growing, and uh, yet at the same time, so was the tension. And this tension was with the religious leaders. Can you imagine the tension then at this point when John the Baptist, who had baptized Jesus and who had been proclaiming and preaching the coming of the Messiah, he pointed to Jesus as the one who had come from God. Unhappily, well, rightly, John had spoken out against Herod's moral behavior, and he'd been imprisoned by Herod. And although we're told that Herod had several conversations with him, it was the outcome of his life that would lead him to behead John. So Jesus and his followers would have been very aware of that. Can you imagine the tension, how it went up a notch? But more of John towards the end of this sermon. And then secondly, in all of the stories, this account follows the disciples having been sent out on their own mission. They were sent to spread the good news and to heal. And at the point where we take up our story, the disciples are being taken away from Jesus for a bit of R&R, a bit of rest and recuperation. They were excited about what they'd experienced. They'd seen healings. They'd been able to cast out demons. And from those dizzy heights, Jesus takes them somewhere quiet. So Jesus is going to take up the story now from Luke chapter 9. So let us read the first few verses of Luke's account of this event. When the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done. Then he took them with him, and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. But the crowds crowds learned about it and followed him. He welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. Late in the afternoon, the twelve came to him and said, send the crowd away so they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging because we are in a remote place here. Jesus replied, you give them something to eat. They answered, we have only five loaves of bread and two fish unless we go and buy food for all this crowd. About 5,000 men were there. We've just thought about the size of the crowd of people there. 
And these would have been not just Jesus' close disciples, the twelve, or those who have become followers and who were with Jesus all the time, but also many ordinary people who had heard about Jesus and what he'd been doing. They wanted to see him. I'm not surprised with some of the things they would have heard about. And so they sought him out. So we have this massive crowd of people. The disciples wanted to send them away when it was getting late in order that they could could get themselves something to eat and somewhere to stay. Looking out on the size of the crowd, I'm sure that sounded a very good idea to the disciples. It appears indeed also to have been very thoughtful. You know, we've been here for a while. These people are going to be hungry and thirsty and it's getting late, so they're going to need somewhere uh, to stay. But what does Jesus do? He challenges his disciples to provide the answer to the people's needs. Let's hold on to that. Because that's what Jesus did then. And you know, he still does that today. And he may even be challenging some of us this morning already in our situations and lives to be the answer, to provide the answer uh, to a need that we've become aware of. Or just be warned, it may be that through what he has to say to us this morning now, he may prompt you to that. And you may go out from this place a bit different from the way you came in because you thought you were just coming in for an easy ride, spend some time with one another and with Jesus and then go out and go on your way. Well, that may be so, but you may have some stuff to do for other people too. What does Jesus say in response to the disciples? He says quite simply this, give them something to eat. Is this a test or is it a statement? These disciples, the twelve, had just experienced such power from God for themselves to heal, to cast out demons. But like us, they are on a journey of faith. And like us, they meet different situations along the way. And this one is a new situation. Indeed, from their point of view, it was a new dilemma that faced them. We've got possibly between 15 and 20,000 people here. Give them to eat. Is it a test? Or is it a statement? And you know, we need to think about this for ourselves too, don't we? Because we experience God's goodness to us in so many amazing ways. I'm sure if I were to ask you to just come and share testimony of the, uh, the amazing ways in which God's goodness has been made to, known to you, there'll be a cue. But also, we face new situations. And perhaps sometimes we feel confronted by them in the way that the disciples did. This was a really new situation. No, it was more than that. This is a real dilemma. 15 to 20,000 people to provide refreshment for and to sort out their accommodation. And just like the 
disciples then, how often do we seem to forget all we've learnt and all we've experienced? How did the disciples react? They looked at the practical problem. And it was a big problem, a dilemma, as we've said. They looked at that rather than to Jesus. They no doubt said to themselves, if not to one another, uh, we haven't got enough money here. There are far too many to feed. We've only got a little, a lunchbox. How often do you and I look at things in the same way? We only see the problem, the dilemma, or even the worst-case scenario. Do you remember last week? The worst-case scenario, the problem. We only see that. That's as far as we get rather than looking to Jesus. How often have you done that? How often have I done that? Having experienced so much of Jesus, having experienced so much of God's goodness in my life, how easy it is and how easy we find it to forget what we've experienced and know of God. Let's continue the reading in Luke's Gospel. But Jesus said to his disciples, make them sit down in groups of about 50 each. The disciples did so, and everyone sat down. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, Jesus gave thanks and broke them. Then he gave them to the disciples to distribute to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 baskets full of broken pieces that were left over. We note first of all that Jesus used the disciples to help him. He said to them, make the people sit down. Having thanked God for the food. He gave it to them that they should give it to the people, to the crowds. Jesus being Jesus could of course have provided, uh, sorry, could have produced the food all at once for each person. He could have dealt with it miraculously. But he chooses to work on this occasion through his disciples. Let's be reminded that Jesus, even though he can do it without us because of who he is, it's still true today. Just as much as it was then that Jesus chooses to use us to help him. Our responsibility is to be alert to any and every opportunity that comes our way to be used. 
so often, if I'm honest, I walk around with my eyes closed and don't see opportunities. I need to keep my eyes open more than I do. There are times when we do seize an opportunity. There are times when we are used by Jesus to help him. There are times when we do that, and we'll get into that when we know that we fail. We may miss the opportunity completely, as I've said, but we may get involved and then mess it up, basically. We may equally feel inadequate to meet the needs, almost questioning God as to why, why are you asking me to help that person? Why are you asking me to seek to meet that need? That's not where I'm at. That's not what I do. But despite those failures, despite that inadequacy, Jesus still chooses to use you and me to meet the needs of others. The question to you and me this morning is, are we up for it? Are we ready to be used? I trust and pray that we are. We see too, through what we've been reading and this story, that Jesus provides people to meet the needs of others, and therefore we're reminded that he provides people to meet our needs too. It's not just practical provision. But if I can put it this way, people provision. People who will listen to us. People who are ready to advise us, to give us financial support, to care for us in whatever way, or just to be there. I pray that each of us this morning has such people in our lives. For you see, we're reminded here, aren't we, that the disciples were actively involved in the outworking of the miracle. And that can be true for us as well. Yes, we can be the people. I can be the person Jesus uses to meet the needs of others. What a privilege. We see too that Jesus used the little because that's all it was. Jesus used the little that was offered. That's the important bit. What it was was offered. None of the accounts tell us how the little lad felt about having his picnic lunch taken from him. I guess as the story unfolded, he was overwhelmed by it all, but possibly at the moment when it was handed over, he probably thought, hang on a minute. Well, I suppose it, perhaps I'm thinking of a, a little lad like me, and you can see that my picnic lunch over the years has been very important to me, and that perhaps I've eaten too many. Jesus took the little that was offered to bless the many. The contents of the picnic box fed between 15 and 20,000 people. Isn't that a reminder to us that whatever we bring to God, great or little, whatever it is, and even though we may think it's nothing, 
Jesus will use and multiply. Although it's not stated again in any of the accounts, the little lads and the disciples had no idea whatsoever how Jesus was going to use that picnic lunch. But it was offered. It blessed many. Let us be ready to offer what we have, great and little, that others may be blessed as God does the business in their lives through what we have given. In verse 16, we read that Jesus gave blessing to God for the food. The important point there is just that we remind ourselves that Jesus recognized it was his heavenly Father who is the provider. Yes, the little lad gave his picnic lunch, but it's what God did it with it that actually provided for that massive crowd. The people were fed. Let's remember that the crowd did nothing to merit the miracle. The situation was this. They had a need. Jesus saw the need. He had compassion, as we read in Matthew's account, in uh, chapter 14 and verse 14, and he met the need. There was a need. Jesus saw it, had compassion, and met the need. Do you need me to remind you? I'm sure you don't. That Jesus is still doing that. God is still doing that today, right now. 2,000 years on. In the world and for each one of us. We prayed this morning, as we do regularly in our prayer at points times, for situations in the world. And some of them are tragic and horrific. And many of them, all of them, seem impossible to us as to how the situation's going to be moved on, how the situation could be resolved. Let's remember that God is still at work in the world today. Our responsibility in those situations, it seems to me, is fundamentally to do what we do. That Sunday by Sunday we pray into those situations. One leads us, but we pray together. That's powerful prayer. And we are among a small group of Christians who are praying into those different situations. Let's not give up praying for impossible situations because God delights in dealing with the impossible. The basic scenario is this. Jesus sees the need in the world, He sees your need, he sees my need. He has compassion. That's key. Jesus looks out with compassion and he meets the need. All we can do as we remind ourselves of that is simply say, thank you, Lord, and please continue. In verse 17, we read that all were satisfied and then the leftovers were collected so nothing was wasted. Give us a bit of an idea of how this was. Yeah, 
to get sponsorship from somewhere for this morning's sermon. So we went to Tesco. So we have the picnic box for lunch. We have there a basket. It's filled with leftovers. We started with what was in there. That is a basket that's filled with what was left over after possibly 15,000 people or more were fed until they were satisfied. But actually, it wasn't just one basket. There were 12 of those, possibly one for each disciple. But do you get the idea? The lunchbox. One small picnic lunch. Possibly as many as more than 15,000 people were fed. And then there were 12 baskets filled up with the leftovers. Many of us here this morning will know this story so well and will have heard comments like this made. But let's just pause for a moment and grasp what this means. And it means quite simply this. God not only can, but does provide. Amen? God not only can, but does provide. He did it then, in that event that happened 2,000 years ago. And he does it now. Praise his name. Some of you will have heard of George Muller, who established uh, children's homes a number of uh, years ago. And he tells the fact that he never asked for money, but rather he prayed for God's provision for the needs of all those involved in those children's homes. He comments that he lived from hand to mouth and once said, it's like this, it's God's hand and our mouth. As I bring this uh, part of the sermon to a close and then Maggie will uh, take it on, I just want to share with you, if you'll allow me, uh, one or two of our own experiences of God providing for us. We stand here, Maggie and I, this morning as those who can say we know as we have known over many years the provision of God. He promises that he'll never let us down And we stand here to say to you, he doesn't. And we believe that as he never has, he never will. We seek to trust him for that. Not always easy. I'm sure like like many of you, and men as we ourselves too, we've had some challenging situations. And sometimes we thought, how on earth are we going to get through this one? We know we wouldn't be alone in, in saying that. 
I want to just take you back, first of all, to uh, just over 30 years uh, ago. Meg and I had been serving as missionaries in Brazil. And while there, I'd received confirmation of a call to pastoral ministry. We came back uh, from Brazil and uh, moved to Bristol. And we were there for three years while I trained for uh, the ministry. Two months after we arrived in Bristol, uh, our elder daughter, who Maggie has referred to, who politely calls us the double act, uh, I've yet to take that up with her, but I will, um, <clears throat> our elder daughter was born. So within two months of coming home, we'd been away for over four years, we had to sort out things for Naomi. People were very generous to us because we didn't have lots of money when we came back from Brazil. And we remember, and still remember it clearly, we got to the point of saying to each other, all we need now for Naomi is a pram. I can't remember, I don't know if Maggie can, but I can't remember how soon it was, but it was pretty soon after we had said that to each other. We had a phone call from a friend of ours in Aylesbury, which is where we lived before we... Uh, we went to Brazil. We were in, in Bristol, and this friend said, oh, I'm aware that um, you're expecting uh, a baby. Uh, I have a pram, uh, if that would be of any use to you. Need I say more about that? We had everything we needed for our elder daughter before she was born. I've said we didn't have loads of money while we were at, um, at college, and um, there were times when we wondered how things would work out. And there was more than once when we had the situation that an unexpected bill arrived and we didn't know how we were going to pay it. And within a comparatively short time, that may be days, it may have been possibly at most a week, uh, an anonymous gift uh, came. There was either exactly the amount of the bill or because God does things in abundance, was actually greater than the cost of the bill. So we actually had a little bit over towards the day-to-day -to -day stuff. There were other times when an anonymous gift arrived, and we thought, ah, what's that about? And within a few days, maybe a week, an unexpected bill. People talk about coincidence. Uh, that happened too often to be a coincidence. Uh, but we stand here and give thanks to God and testimony to God that he provided for us in those very practical ways. And he's still providing for us now in practical ways over 30 years on. We always have all that we need day by day. He continues to be faithful to us, providing for us not just practical provision that God makes, like providing a meal for that massive crowd. But the other thing we want to just comment on is that he always and often gives us people. You know, we've read there about the, the disciples being those who served others in that miracle. 
God has always given us people, people to come alongside us just when we've needed it. And just as we still do, there are people who are alongside us now. People who play an important part in our lives. Some of them we've known for many years and they're from other places we've lived and we still have contact with them. One or two of them we meet with on a regular basis. We have many too here in Shrewsbury and particularly through the fellowship here at Barnabas. We meet with some of you on a regular basis. We thank God for all those people that God has given to us over the years. And we thank them too for being God's provision to us. I've been explaining. I've drunk his drink. <laughs> so all that Jesus said is really important. It's really important for us to know that uh, this uh, this miracle is true for us today as well, and that God provides for us. But the thousands of people there that day had an experience far more than the fact that God provided for their bodily needs. They had a truly memorable experience. And that's possibly one of the reasons why it features in all four Gospels. But I want to suggest another reason as well. And that happens when we look at the context and when we put on glasses that Jewish people would have had in those days. And we see where this account comes in the Bible. As I said, it comes after John the Baptist has been um, beheaded. But he, John, when he was alive, he sent his disciples to Jesus when he was in prison, actually. And he sent them to ask if he was the one, if Jesus was really the one, or would there be another? And Jesus sent those disciples back to John saying, report on all you have seen and heard. Because Jesus' actions and words were what pointed to the fact that he was the one. And so what we find is that this particular miracle is one of the very clear signs that Jesus was the chosen one. He was the Messiah. In John's account, it comments that having happened, some people saw it to be proof that Jesus was the prophet who was to come into the world. Many of us know that the Jews were looking for a Messiah to come and to set them free from the Romans. They were looking for that rescuer. And one expectation they had was that uh, that person would be like Moses and that they would be taken back to a time like in the wilderness, which is reported in Exodus, when they saw God performing miracles. And so this Messiah figure would form and would perform miracles like Moses. And uh, the Jewish leaders, in fact, asked Jesus at one point, what signs would you give? Because they said that Moses gave the people bread from heaven to eat. So this exact miracle tells them in uncertain terms, this is the problem. And Jesus corrected them, actually, and he said, no, it wasn't Moses that gave you that bread, it was God. And that's what Jesus did here. He gave God the thanks as well. And at the same time, 
Not only did God give them the bread then, that God gives them the bread of life. Jesus himself. And he says those words that I'm sure we all remember. I am the bread of life. So the very fact that Jesus performed this miracle tells the people that are reading this story that he is Messiah. And just as Jesus acknowledged it was God who gave the people to eat by offering the bread up to his heavenly Father, it's the same God who gives them and us the way to eternal life. So this story actually has a much more important thing. It has to say that the Messiah has come, the Savior has come, but not just for the Jewish nation, but for everyone Jesus himself said in John 6, verse 40, everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. So it shows us that God not only provided for the physical needs of the crowd through Jesus on that great occasion, but he was the one who provided for their spiritual needs. The need to be forgiven for their wrongdoing, the need to be rescued from the consequence of their own sin. And by reading in the Bible, the Gospels, it makes it very clear for us too that this same God, through giving us his son Jesus, still provides for us physically and most especially spiritually. Now we must be careful not to look for miraculous signs for the wow factor, which is what some of the people in Jesus' time would have done. But actually we look to them for the proof that Jesus is who he says he is, the Messiah. And Jesus said it was much more important to concentrate on heavenly things than on the earthly. Many of our worship songs this morning refer to Jesus and all that he's done for us on the cross and how he's forgiven us and how because of that we have a future and we have a hope. So we thank God for providing his greatest provision, that is Jesus who died for us. So what then is our response to this miracle? Firstly, it's really important to acknowledge before God and before other people that he does provide for us physically and spiritually. We need to realize that the miracle was a definite sign that Jesus is Messiah, and that's why it's important and in all four Gospels. And for some of us, we need to recognize, well, for all of us, we need to recognize it, but for some of us this morning, it might be that we need to recognize for the first time our need to respond to Jesus as saviour. And then, for all of us, it's a case of we need to trust God to provide for us in every way. We're going to conclude with a song, and we've sung it already, and so I ask the musicians if they'd like to come up, please. Now, this particular song is Great as Thy Faithfulness, and it's our testimony, G and mine, We're not going to have it sung, though, just for sentimental reasons. It's because we actually can hold true to the fact that all it says in this hymn is absolutely true and has been true for us all the way along the line. And in the last verse, it talks about a pardon for sin. So it mentions not just the physical that God provides, but it mentions the spiritual too. So let's sing this with real gusto, because God is faithful. And he will continue to provide for us. Let's stand together.